0: Every year the Times Newspaper issues its rich list of the 1,000 wealthiest people in Britain. In 2007 the top three remained unchanged, headed by the Indian steel magnate Lakshmi Mittal with an estimated wealth of 19,250 million pounds. Uh, Despite the large sums in my mind that he's spent on Chelsea Football Club, Roman Abramovich, the Russian, is still in second place with £10,800 million, followed by the Duke of Westminster with £7,000 million. As you get to the final end of the list, and it's easily accessible uh, on the internet, you discover a whole group of people who are grouped together who are worth a mere £70 million. There is a separate list for Scotland... Headed by Sir Tom Hunter with 1,050 million, J.K. Rowling, the creator of Harry Potter, have slipped to ninth place with only 545 million pounds, although this didn't include the publication of her last book, which will no doubt send her up a place or two. Uh, I wonder as we see those kind of figures, what our attitude is to such wealth and wealthy people. I suspect if we're honest, there's a kind of mixture of envy where such wealth is inherited or won on things like the lottery maybe also admiration where such wealth is earned by industry Uh, both sections I want to suggest are centered around a key question a, a question which is asked of Jesus and which Jesus then answers so here's where we'll go there are two key questions and answers Question one is what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you'll find that in verses 18 through 23. And the second question that emerges from it then asked uh, to Jesus who then can be saved? Verses 24 to 30. And then in conclusion we'll see how Jesus heads for Jerusalem to suffer and die and rise again in order to answer these questions by achieving the impossible. So then, going to say you're all sitting comfortable Are you all sitting uncomfortably in these pews? Uh, let's start with question one, which this man asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18. Now, this story is a very important incident. It's one of those stories that are included in all the first three Gospels. You'll, if you're making notes, it's in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. It's in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 10, verses 17 through 34. Uh, And the stories are substantially the same, but each of the writers includes details that are lacking in the others. Luke alone tells us about the status of this man, that he was a ruler, that is, a community leader of some kind. He may have been a religious leader, that is, a leader of his local Jewish synagogue. Synagogue. Uh, though many people doubt that for a very good reason that Matthew tells us he was young. Perhaps too young to be an elder. From Mark's account, if you read Mark's account, Mark describes how Jesus was going down the road and this young man in his eagerness rushed up to Jesus and fell down on his knees and asked his question. Luke simply records the question he asks. A serious question and I want to suggest that it reveals two things about this young man. First of all, it reveals his theology, use a technical word, what he believes about God and religious things. Uh, As he is young, very rich, it's probable that his wealth is inherited rather than earned. He didn't do anything to earn his privileged position. He was born, as we say, with a silver spoon in his mouth. But nonetheless, he believes... He must do something if he, is to inherit in the, if he is to be an heir in the life to come, to inherit eternal life. Now, if you were to take a random survey down Princess Street and stop people with a clipboard and ask them, How can you qualify for heaven when you die? you would get a whole variety of answers among those, still a large majority, who believe in life after death and heaven. Live a good life, give to charity do good deeds, help your neighbour, pray, believe in God. But the common denominator among them would be a conviction that you have to do something to qualify. However, if you modified the question and said, how can you be sure that you'll qualify for heaven after you die, then I, I, I think that most people would be hopeful rather than certain. And what is really surprising is that this is still the case with people who are upright moral citizens. People like this young man. For his question, I want to suggest to you, also reveals a second thing. Not only his theology, but secondly, his insecurity. Despite his privileged position, as we've seen, despite the fact that currently riches were held as a sign of God's favour, this young man isn't quite sure about eternal life. Otherwise, he would not eagerly have sought out Jesus and asked his question. And despite as we discover his moral lifestyle, he still thinks something is missing. In Matthew's account, after he recites that he's kept all the commandments, Matthew records that he added, What do I still lack? What, what's still missing? So if you were asked, you were asked, as I'm asking you this morning, how can you qualify for heaven when you die? What would your answer be? That's the big question. And if you're asked, how can you be sure that when you die you'll go to heaven? Would you be hopeful or just absolutely certain? Well, if you want an authoritative answer to such questions, you need to do what the young man did ask the expert. You need to ask Jesus. A certain ruler asked him, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice then, after a serious question, a surprising answer from Jesus. Which rather than giving a neat answer, forces this wealthy young ruler to do two things. First of all, it's a surprising answer, look at what Jesus says, which forces him to evaluate his opinion of Jesus. Jesus asks so often when people ask him questions, asks the questions straight back. Jesus says, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone." Now, if you read this on the surface, it sounds like Jesus is saying only God is good. So why do you call me good? Because I am not God. This would, in fact, contradict everything else the Gospels say about Jesus, and quite a lot of what Jesus said about himself. So, why does Jesus say this to this young man? Well, surely the reason is to make him think through who he really believes Jesus is. In actual fact, if you look at contemporary Jewish thinking and literature, it is extremely rare to find the words good and teacher linked together. Because good was a word that was reserved exclusively for God. And this young ruler, being very religious and moral, he must have known that. So, so, why does he address Jesus in this way? Is he using flattery? Or is he just being a bit careless in his language? Either way, the question of Jesus brings him up short. He's forced to think for a moment. Asking, as it were, Jesus says, Do you really think I am God? His words will be put to the test in a few moments and reveal what he really thinks about Jesus when Jesus says to him not come follow God but come follow me and he turns away very sad if you were to ask a third question it's probably quite a helpful exercise we've done it before in the past to go down Prince's Street and ask people these important questions if you were to ask people in Prince's Street a third question who do you think Jesus was? the most common answer would probably include the word good and probably the word teacher. Good, even great teacher. Most people, surveys show us, are pro-Jesus or what they know of Him. He was a good man, wonderful moral teacher. But I would suggest to you, if you think that, you need to think a little more carefully. It reveals a shallowness of thought. There's a famous quote from C.S. Luce's book, Mere Christianity, which is well worth reading. If you've never read it, it's a great book and a good book to give to thinking people. Uh, Let me repeat it. I've quoted it many times probably in the past, but it's worth repeating. This is what Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who thinks he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, if you think Jesus is merely a good, great teacher, teacher you can still reject his advice as this man eventually does find another teacher whose teaching you prefer but if he is God then you have to sit up and obey what he says because there's no higher authority so Jesus is making this young man and I suggest us think through very carefully to evaluate who we think he is is he good or is he God but Jesus then continues his surprising answer to address the young ruler on his own terms by causing him to do a second thing. Notice the second thing. To evaluate his obedience to God's law. Jesus goes on. He says to the young man, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Now, of course, the commandments, he knew what he was talking about. Probably still most of us do. He's talking about the Ten Commandments that were given on Mount Sinai through Moses for the people of Israel. They're recorded in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. They were written on two tablets of stone. And Jesus quotes from the second tablet uh, the commandments on the second tablet. Uh, They're not in exact order and I won't bore you by discussing why scholars say they're in the wrong order or whatever. If you're interested, I'll speak to you afterwards. Won't affect your eternal security, I assure you. Uh, But he he quotes them in the order 7, 6, 8 and 9. And then 5 and he omits number 10. You shall not cover it. Now, when the ruler hears this, he immediately feels he's on safe ground. If that's all it's about, I'm okay. He makes a superficial response. He says, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Verse 21. Since he became morally accountable... A bar mitzvah, that is, a young person, a son of the law, morally responsible. He says, I've kept all these laws, perfectly. Such claims actually smack of self-righteousness, if not presumption. They put him on a par with people like Abraham and Moses. But the words of Jesus demolish any such complacency. Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, that's fine, then you're in, no problem, great he issues a searching challenge. Now, notice what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. Verse 22. Jesus tells him to do two things. He says, forsake your earthly wealth, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, if you want to receive heavenly treasure. Now it's very important to notice this is not a specific demand made of all disciples. Not every person who followed Jesus, sold everything they had, gave to the poor, and followed him It's not a requirement for becoming a Christian. we don 't say pe- people who join Charlotte Chapel well you're welcome in Charlotte Chapel now you' remember in Charlotte Chapel we suggest, well, we tell you you need to sell everything you have, give it to the poor and then you can be part of our community here. Even in the early church in the book of Acts where this was a common practice, it was not a requirement. You know the Bible, you remember that, that dreadful story of Ananias and Sapphira who claimed to have sold a field and given the money to the apostles and Peter says you've lied to God and you face God's judgment. The problem was not that he didn't give the money. The problem was he was being deceitful. Peter actually says to him, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money still at your disposal? Now the issue for this young man is a particular issue. In his case, the thing he lacks, the big obstacle in his life, which will bar him from inheriting eternal life, is his wealth. What now of the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Has his wealth become his God? Have his riches become his idol? The test is, will he let go of them? What he lacks is what he has. So he must let go of it. And secondly, Jesus says, follow me. Which also means forsaking his family as well as his wealth. Uh, the Middle Eastern expert, Kenneth Bailey, points out that the challenge of Jesus touches on the two primary values in the culture of the day, namely property and family, he comments. He, that is the young man, is asked to place loyalty to the person of Jesus higher than loyalty to his family and his family estate. And he he comments, Abraham, great patriarch, founder of the nation of Israel, was faced with a similar type of demand on two occasions. He left his estate in Ur, the Chaldees, to respond to obedience, then on Mount Moriah, God required of him his willingness to put obedience to God on a higher level than loyalty to his own family. Abraham passed that great test of obedience and faith. The ruler failed even on the first type of test. So notice the conclusion of this story, the sad outcome. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Now, just notice up till this point, Jesus didn't know Well, people thought he didn't know who this young man was. He's just a ruler. He comes along. He speaks to Jesus. But Jesus puts his finger, as he does in our lives, on the one thing that we hold dearest and says, what you lack is what you have. The other Gospels tell us he went away downcast. You see, the one he called good teacher is not good enough, God enough, to obey his command. And so it is still with many people today. Faced with the cost of following Jesus, we turn away. So let me ask you this morning, what's it costing you to follow Jesus? Well, let me put it in practical terms. What is it that you hold dear that you don't want to give up? That you'd be unwilling to sacrifice for the sake of following Jesus? Jesus said, in general terms, this does apply to everyone, whoever does not forsake all he has cannot be my disciple. What he means is, if you're going to follow me, you have to come with open hands that aren't clinging on to other things that you love more than you love me. It's a very searching, demanding challenge. Your problem may not be money at all. You've no chance of getting in the rich list. Most of us haven't. Still, no matter how much we have, we hold on to it dearly, don't we? Those relationships we hold dear, those aspirations, that career, whatever it might be, this is a very demanding challenge now why does Jesus make such challenging demands of us sometimes I think we can view him like the uh, my father told me that when he went into the army in the second world war the first training they had was a great big pile of stones on the parade ground and the sergeant major said right men move those stones to the other side of the parade ground and they all picked them and staggered across in the heat At the end of the day the sergeant major said fine the next day they got up he said right men see those stones move them back to the other side again just a pointless exercise to try and instill obedience which usually instills simmering resentment and we sometimes think well Jesus just asked these things of us because he wants us to be obedient no the young man wants to inherit eternal life and it's because one of the gospel writers tells us that when he said all those things he'd done it says Jesus loved him And he said, look, I love you so much I've got to point out there's one thing that's going to stop you getting into heaven. It's because of his love for us that he only wants the best for us. The young man went away very sad. And no doubt, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ was very sad about his response. Such a promising young man. Such great potential. Yet he went away sad. And he feels the same about us. The things that we prefer instead of him the things we hold dearer than Him. Because they will bar us from following Him. And they will bar us from heaven, ultimately. In the NIV commentary on Luke, Darrell Bock, the American, writes, what is really frightening is how easy it is for all of us to choose earth over heaven. How easy it is for all of us to choose earth over heaven. So as the young man leaves, Jesus looks at him, perhaps at his back, and addresses those present, and now what follows centers around another question which Jesus provokes and then answers his the second question, verses 24 to 30: "Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved?" What Jesus says is that for those like this rich young man who are hoping for heaven, there is bad news as he stresses the difficulty of entering the kingdom of heaven. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. His hearers would have been absolutely shocked and astounded. I- in fact, in Mark's Gospel, uh, he uses a very strong word, if I can use a crude expression, it said, he w- the disciples were hit in the mouth. It's a horrible expression, but I'll say it, gobsmacked at what Jesus said. But in fact, the situation is even worse. For Jesus goes on to say, stress not only the difficulty of entering the kingdom of heaven, the impossibility of entering the kingdom of God. He says, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Let me just say a word about this, this, this graphic picture Jesus uses because there have been many attempts to explain it away. And if, you, if you've heard any of them, just forget them, all right? Uh, quite an ancient explanation is that in Greek, the word for camel, if you change it by one vowel, you get the word for rope. So people say, well, it's just a mistake here. What Jesus was saying, it, it's like trying to get a rope through the eye of a needle. You may also have heard this explanation, you know, that the eye of the needle was the name of a small gate, either in the door of a house or in the city of Jerusalem, uh, that if a camel went through it, he had to go down on his knees and take all his load off, and he's saying it's really difficult like that. No, it isn't. This is what is called hyperbole, exaggeration. Jesus is saying it's impossible. It's just a very graphic, funny picture, isn't it? Imagine trying to get, you think a little eye of a needle, Trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Is he saying it's really difficult? No, he's saying it's just totally impossible. Uh, Bach again has an expanded commentary on Luke. He says, The point of the hyperbolic, seemingly silly illustration is clear. It is impossible for rich people on their own strength to gain entry into the kingdom. And the young man's sadness vividly illustrates the proverb. He continues, Wealth can shrink the door of the kingdom down to an impossible peephole. The self-focused security of the wealthy is a padlock against kingdom entry. The remark is shocking to Jesus' listeners, who assume that at least some of the wealthy will be first in line to receive God's blessings. Now, when Jesus says this, and if you're there and... uh, think of the Jewish background that I began with explaining about the rich and how people saw them, there is an obvious question that the people are going to ask when Jesus says this. The obvious question is those who heard him ask, who then can be saved? Notice in passing the the, the relationship, uh, entering the kingdom, inheriting eternal life, being saved from God's judgment are all part and parcel of the same thing. Who can make it? The point is this, the conclusion is this, what they're saying is If a rich young ruler and a very moral one at that can't make it, what hope is there for anyone? Imagine for a moment, back to the opening illustration. Let's suppose, uh, I'm trying to think of an illustration. It's not perfect. The light's going out all over. Um, Imagine for a moment that a beautiful piece of art comes, uh, is created. It's it's seen in the news. I can't think of anything. But, you know, the kind of thing you look at and think, wow, just imagine owning that. And let's suppose that Lakshmi, uh, actually Lakshmi is the, is the Hindu goddess of wealth. Uh, so, Lakshmi Mittal, the Indian steel magnate, sees this and he decides to invest some of his 19,250 million pounds in acquiring it. However, his agent finally comes back to him and says, Your Honour, whatever he calls him, sorry, he says, there's no more chance of a camel getting through the eye of a needle than you being able to buy this piece of art. Now, when you hear this, would you not say, if Lakshmi can't buy it, what hope is there for me? If it's bad news for Lakshmi, it's bad news for everyone. Now, the words of Jesus are meant to evoke the same conclusion. It's not as though he's saying, if you're poor, you've got a better chance. As someone says, salvation does not come through an empty bank balance. No, the extra problem for the rich person is that he or she is less likely to face up to the bad news that no one can make it into heaven because they will rely on their wealth. And conversely, it's less likely, unlike the poor person, to receive the good news that follows as Jesus answers his own question. Here's the good news. Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is he saying? Only God can do the impossible. Inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom, being saved. Nobody can make it unless God does it. Only God can do the impossible. Save sinners. Get them into heaven. This is a radical teaching of Jesus. It won't be through anything you do. Rich or poor, but by grace that you will enter as a free, though certainly not cheap, gift from God. Kenneth Bailey again comments helpfully. Salvation is affirmed as an action of God. No one unaided enters the kingdom. No one achieves great things and inherits eternal life. As inheritance is a gift, not an earned right. And inheritance is a gift, not an earned right. No one has rights in the kingdom. Not even rich men with all their potential for good works. It is as though the owner of the beautiful art object who has turned down Lakshmi's millions offers it to you as a free gift to put on your mantle shelf. Don't push the analogy too far. And that is not all. For there is more good news from Jesus. Peter, as usual, speaks up for the rest. He says to Jesus, verse 28 We have left all to follow you. We have done what this young man refused to do. We left our business, we left our homes, our families. There's a question behind it. Matthew makes it explicit in his Gospel. Peter says, What then will there be for us? Is it worth it? And Jesus reassures him with promises for faithful followers, both present and in the future. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. These are words of absolutely assurance from the Son of God. He prefaces them with this very serious statement, literally Hebrew word. He says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, this is absolutely certain. Jesus says, if you follow me, there are amazing compensations which more than make up for anything you give and lose in this life, And in the life to come, you're promised eternal life. Now, this is not, of course, the motive for following Jesus, the hope of a reward. But it's the gracious gift of God which we receive for faithful service now and in eternity. Let me speak to those of you who are Christians. Some of you, it's a very costly business. I spoke to some people in some parts of the world, it's cost them everything. Literally. But all of us, if we're following Christ, listen, it has cost us something. Something that only eternity will reveal. And let's be absolutely honest. There are times when we look at those that we went to university with. Those that we were contemporaries with. Maybe they've got a lot more than you have. And they don't put a tenth plus of their income given to other people. They live for themselves. Do what they like. And sometimes the great danger for the Christian is you look and say... And Lord, I've left all everything for you. What, what's in it for me? And I simply say to you, these are the words of Jesus, the compensations far outweigh anything you will lose. Let me speak to those of you who are not Christians. And you may be saying, this is pretty tough stuff. Absolutely, it will cost you everything to follow Jesus. But the compensations far outweigh anything you will lose in this life and in eternity. But salvation, what Jesus offers, entry into the kingdom, blessings of heaven, salvation, is free but it's not cheap. So notice what follows as we come to our conclusion. The teaching of Jesus which immediately follows, the conclusion in verses 31 to 34. Jesus now takes the 12 aside, 12 disciples, begins to explain them what is going to happen to him in the near future. You see, Jesus is not one of these armchair leaders. You know, sends people out as suicide bombers and sits at home making instructions. No, what he asks of everyone else, he does himself first. He is the one who has forsaken the riches of heaven to come to earth, laid aside his glory, made himself nothing. He's about to humble himself to death on a cross. He's the one who is even willing to forsake fellowship with the Father when he dies on the cross crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the one who leads from the front. And he says to the disciples, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be following God's plan. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Verse 31. It will involve humiliation. As Jesus dies for our sin, he will be turned over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. But this will be followed by exaltation. Raised for our justification. On the third day he will rise again. By this he will fulfill what he told the disciples was humanly impossible. Who then can be saved? He achieves the impossible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. (coughs) In the words of the old hymn, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven. And let us in. That's what the gospel is about. Most religious people just don't think it's anything like this. They think all oh, those people in Charlotte chapter they go along because they think they're better than anyone else. No, it's just that we know we're worse. We know that we're the lowest. We know that we are sinners, only saved by grace. That's the only reason we're here. It's level ground at the foot of the cross. And the only reason I'm up here is because you couldn't see me if I stood down there. It's the wonderful good news of the gospel. What is impossible, humanly speaking, is a gift of God. Notice the response to the disciples. The disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't know what he was talking about. Only later was the truth revealed to them. Only later did they appreciate what Jesus had done for them. The question for us this morning is, do we understand? Do you understand why Jesus had to die? Like that? Do you understand that There was no other way. And you understand why He had to be raised to life for our justification. Because without that, if He still remained dead, that we are still in our sins. We have no hope. We will die and that will be the end of it. But He is the resurrection and the life. Do we understand? This is the heart of the Gospel. This is the most important story. Final illustration, which I saw in the news. You probably did as well on Wednesday. Wednesday headline news here's the headline in one paper I trade my 19 million pounds win to get my health back Stephen Smith who won 19 million pounds on the lottery said he would gladly give it all up to get his health back and live longer with his wife his win was overshadowed by a medical condition that could kill him at any time this is what he said it's a ticking time bomb inside me it's my wife Ida I worry for I would give it all back if I could still be with her there are no shops in the cemetery I percept it there are no shops in the cemetery can't take it with you I wonder what he'd be prepared and you'd be prepared to give up to inherit eternal life see a rich young man refused to give up his wealth to follow Jesus and missed out on heaven what choice will you make will I make when faced by Jesus with the same challenge come follow me he calls you this morning to follow for the first time for those of us who started following we've turned aside and been distracted by other things that we now are clinging on to instead of following Jesus he says come follow me and the challenge is this what is the one thing that you lack the one thing in your life that you won't let go of to follow Jesus. That's the challenge of God's word this morning. And we can respond like the young man. Go away very sad. Or we can gladly follow Jesus and experience all the rewards that he offers to those who faithfully follow him. Let's pray together.